Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, the women's session of General Conference, October 2019. Last week, Radio Free Mormon put up no less than five podcasts, the usually scheduled podcast on Sunday of last week, and then additional episodes on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of last week. Today is March 30th, 2020. It is a Monday. We remain in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, but it is possible I am speaking too soon. Yesterday, the church had a worldwide day of fasting and prayer to stay the effects of the coronavirus, so perhaps if I peek outside, I will find out that things are actually actually back to normal. But on the off chance that the day of fasting and prayer had no significant impact at all on the virus, I will repeat that we are in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. During this pandemic, many, many people are sheltering at home and not able to get out and about as they usually do. Many people are not even going to work. And indeed, here in Washington, where I live, we are under a government directive to not go to work unless we fall into the category of an emergency provider. Because I fall under that category, I am at work. And during this coronavirus, I want to do my bit to try and help with the morale of listeners to Radio Free Mormon by putting out more episodes than I normally release. I started out this program in October of 2016 with the goal in mind that I would release a new episode once every three weeks. But in the last several months, I have been putting out an episode every week. So I have gone from one episode every three weeks to one episode every week. But now I am increasing that output in order to try and do my bit during the coronavirus outbreak. There really isn't a lot I can do to help out with other people. What I can do for myself and those close to me is to stay away from other people as much as possible, maintain a six-foot social distance, wash my hands frequently with soap and hot water, and when I have to cough, I cough into my elbow. On top of that, I just got done spraying my workstation and all the doorknobs in this underground bunker with Lysol. So I am doing everything that I can do personally in order to combat this coronavirus. But when it comes to the big decisions that are being made on a statewide and nationwide scale, there is little to nothing I can do about those decisions. And so when I saw that Andrew Lloyd Webber was streaming video, playing songs from many of his wonderful musicals from over the years, and then when I saw Sir Patrick Stewart actually reading Shakespeare in order to help people at home weather the coronavirus, I thought maybe I could do something as well. Now, Radio Free Mormon may not be up there on a par with Andrew Lloyd Webber and Sir Patrick Stewart. I'm certainly not saying this is Shakespeare, although it might be kind of close to cats at least. But what I have been doing in the last several episodes is going back to the general conference session from October of 2019 and going over highlights, things that struck me in the different talks that were given. My goal is to get my commentary out on last general conference before this general conference is in the record books. And this general conference coming up will be this coming weekend, the first Saturday and Sunday of April. We have gone through the talks in the Saturday morning session. We have gone through the talks in the Saturday afternoon session. And now we arrive at the Saturday evening session of General Conference. Now, historically, ever since I joined the church back in 1978, the Saturday evening session of General Conference was reserved exclusively for the priesthood session. This is when all members of the priesthood, ages 12 and up, would attend this General Conference session and would be addressed by holders 
of the priesthood, i.e. the usual general authorities that we hear during the other sessions of general conference, and yet they would restrict their comments to subjects relating more to the priesthood and the holders of the priesthood than the subjects that are typically addressed in the other sessions. Now, at some point, many years ago, the women started to get their own session of general conference. And by that, I mean not so much a session as a special women's meeting, which was held the week before general conference. At that meeting, the women would gather and they would be addressed by different women's leaders and also by male leaders of the LDS church, usually the three members of the first presidency. Now, the reason I say that I may be overstepping the line by saying that that was a session of general conference, because if memory serves a number of years ago, the very terminology of what to call this meeting or session came into focus. I think that historically it was called a meeting. It was not considered a session of general conference. And then a number of years ago, one of the leaders of the LDS church, and I think it was President Uchtdorf, though I could be wrong about that, but in one of his regular talks during general conference, he referred to the women's meeting as a session. And this ignited a firestorm of controversy. Was this meeting of the women a week before general conference just a meeting that was not part of general conference, or was it a session that should be considered part and parcel of general conference? And when the dust had finally settled, it was determined by the LDS Church that indeed the women's meeting would be considered a session of general conference. After that decision was made, another decision was made that since it was a session of general conference, it would not be held the week before general conference. Instead, we would have it the Saturday evening of general conference. And the way this would be done is that the priesthood session, which was always historically on the Saturday evening of general conference, would be held not every general conference, in other words, twice a year. Instead, it would be held only once a year during the April general conference. And during the October semi-annual general conference, the women's session would be on Saturday evening. And this is what happened on the Saturday evening during the October general conference is that the women's session was held at that time. There were six talks given during the women's session. The first three were given by women leaders in the church, and the last three were given by the first presidency. Now, from one point of view, we can look at that and say that we have to have male leaders at the women's session because we can't let the women be exclusively in control of it because who knows what mischief they might get up to if left unsupervised. On the other side of it, though, the vast majority of women who are attending this conference sustain the members of the First Presidency as prophets, seers, and revelators, and are probably overjoyed to have them address the women specifically and in particular during this session of General Conference. The first talk was given by Reina I. Aberto, the second counselor in the Relief Society General Presidency, and her talk is titled, Through Cloud and Sunshine, Lord, Abide With Me. Now, her talk is absolutely remarkable, and it got a lot of attention because it dealt openly and expressly with the subject of women's feelings of inferiority in the church. And these feelings of inferiority and inadequacy are honestly come by in the LDS church because the women, as much as, if not more than, the male members of the LDS church have a massive amount of pressure put on them through the LDS context of being not only incredible, faithful Mormons, those who do their visiting, teaching, or ministering, those who do their callings, those who do all the 101 things, maybe even the 1,001 things that every member of the church is supposed to do, but also on top of that, they have to be wonderful, dare I say it, perfect parents to their children to make sure that their children don't go off the rails. And they also have to be wonderful, perfect homemakers and wonderful, perfect wives while being wonderful, perfect members of the church. This can all be completely 
overwhelming to a woman in the church who takes her responsibilities as a member of the church seriously, who truly sustains what the leaders of the church say about how it is that they need to fulfill their callings in this variety of different roles and circumstances. Now, it's easy for me to say the words, I cannot really say that I understand how it feels because I am not a woman. What I can say is that I know how it feels as a man, and as a man, it is overwhelming. And I can recognize, at least intellectually, that for a woman, it's got to be even more than that because there's so much more that they are required to do as a faithful Latter-day Saint, even than a man is required to do. For example, outside the marriage context and in a pre-marriage context, if a boy and a girl are dating and it starts to get hot and heavy because the boy is generally more sexualized than the woman. I know that's a gross overgeneralization. I hope you will bear with me. But in those situations where the boy is wanting to move things forward in a sexual manner more than they should be under the law of chastity, the church in a number of different talks and in a number of different ways puts the burden upon the girl, puts the burden upon the woman in those situations to turn off the steam and make sure it doesn't go beyond what is appropriate. There is sort of the idea boys will be boys, but girls need to be in control of the situation and make sure that the law of chastity is not violated. Now, I don't want to overstate that because boys are certainly not given free license within the LDS church. They are told that they need to respect the women that they go out with, the women they date, that they should not be doing these types of things. Those are the messages that are given to the boys. But to the women is given a different message. And that message puts the burden on them with the result that in spite of what is told to the boys directly, the general idea is there that it's the woman's responsibility to control the sexuality or non-sexuality or the limits of sexuality of a relationship with a boy to whom they are not married. So that's just one example that I can recognize and point to of this phenomenon that as difficult as it is for men to be members of the church and all the things that they are asked to do and required to do in order to be considered faithful and observant, that same phenomenon applies to women in the church even more so. So that is something that is generally understood in the LDS church, but it's something that is not frequently addressed in the LDS church. It is a problem that is there, but you're really not supposed to talk about because everybody's supposed to pretend that they're great, they're doing wonderfully, they're following all the commandments, and because of that, they're happy, happy, happy. So they go to church, they pretend to be happy, they pretend to be observant. In other words, women as well as the men understand that through keeping the commandments, that is the only thing that will make them happy. Therefore, because they're keeping the commandments, or at least as good as they can, they know they need to come to church and act happy. If they're acting anything other than happy, then that's a signal to everybody else that they must not be following the commandments because if they were following the commandments, they'd be happy. That's why I have sometimes said the church is a place we go to on Sunday to pretend that we're perfect. Now, I don't want to overstate this and say that absolutely everybody who goes to church is unhappy. I will say, however, that that was my situation for decades before I finally stopped attending church. And once again, I expect that I am not the only one in that boat. I do remember that a number of years ago, I had a Chinese foreign exchange student come and live with me for his senior year. He attended school. He really wanted to take advantage of this year that he had in the United States. And he went out for band practice. He was extremely active in school. And he also wanted to go to church, by which I mean the LDS church. I was very careful not to put any pressure on him that he should feel he needed to go to church, but he wanted to go to church anyway. And I remember the very first time he went to church was the first Sunday in September of whatever school year that was, which was also fast and testimony meeting. And we had a number of people get up there and they bore their usual 
testimonies. There were a lot of tears shed. There was a lot of talk about difficulties that people were going through, but how with the power of the priesthood and the power of the Savior and faith in Jesus, that they were able to muddle through those difficulties. And as I say, I have been experiencing this for decades, the first Sunday of every month. And so this was nothing new to me. But I remember looking at this foreign exchange student after the meeting was over and asking him what he thought. And he paused for a second and then said in his somewhat broken English, hmm, why is everybody so sad? And I looked at him and then I just laughed out loud because all of a sudden I was able to see fast and testimony meeting through the eyes of someone who had never been there before. And I had to recognize that yes, his perception was absolutely spot on. Somebody going to sacrament meeting, fast and testimony meeting for the very first time had the impression that everybody was crying, everybody was so sad, and why was it that you wanted to go to church and be in a place that made you so sad? The words being used may be very faithful, but a lot of times the tears and the expressions and the way those words are said denote a fundamental underlying sadness. And it is the sadness that Sister Alberto, the second counselor in the Relief Society General Presidency, is going to talk about in the first talk in the women's session of October 2019 General Conference. And that's why your title is Through Cloud and Sunshine, Lord, Abide With Me. Of course, a quote from the famous hymn. She frames her discussion around a story involving her daughter. And this is the story. This is how she tells it. My daughter once wrote, There was a time when I was extremely sad all of the time. I always thought that sadness was something to be ashamed of and that it was a sign of weakness. So I kept my sadness to myself. I felt completely worthless. Let me read those lines again because once again, these are the lines of a statement that Sister Alberto in the Relief Society General Presidency of the LDS Church is reading from her own daughter. I felt completely worthless. Well, why would an active Latter-day Saint woman feel completely worthless? That's the subject of this talk. She goes on, a friend described it this way. So now she's going to talk about a different friend who I presume is also female. Since my early childhood, I have faced a constant battle with feelings of hopelessness, darkness, loneliness, and fear, and the sense that I am broken or defective. Now, why would she feel broken or defective in any way? Could it possibly have to do with the fact that the LDS Church heaps upon the members, especially the female members, a load of demands and expectations that nobody can possibly fulfill? There are just too many of them going in all directions at once. And the irony is that if you don't take it seriously, you can actually be happy. If you don't take it seriously, the requirement that you do all of these things, then you can be happy. But if you take it seriously and believe that your eternal salvation is dependent upon your keeping all these commandments and all these rules that you cannot keep, and you're falling short all the time and only too aware of it, then yes, you can end up feeling broken or defective. The friend goes on, I did everything to hide my pain. Remember my saying that church is a place you go to on Sunday to pretend you're perfect or to pretend you're happy? I did everything to hide my pain and to never give the impression that I was anything but thriving and strong. Now, does that describe any Mormons you know? If you're a former Mormon, does that describe you? when you used to be active in the church. Now this sister addresses her audience. After sharing these two experiences, one from her daughter and one from this other friend, she says, my dear friends, it can happen to any of us, especially when as believers in the plan of happiness, remember it's the plan of happiness. That's what Mormons call it, the plan of happiness. 
As believers in the plan of happiness, we place unnecessary burdens on ourselves by thinking we need to be perfect now. Now, there's a lot going on in this sentence. First off, I want to give kudos to the sister for recognizing this phenomenon in the LDS church among the sisters and talking about it openly in general conference. This is hugely important. On the other hand, I have to notice that even while she is giving this talk, she is taking the blame for this phenomenon, the blame for this expectation of doing all these things that we cannot do and not placing it upon the leaders of the church who are the ones who are responsible for these expectations, but taking it upon herself, taking it upon the sisters themselves and by her talk, placing the fault upon the sisters that she is addressing. Let me repeat this. My dear friends, it can happen to any of us, especially when as believers in the plan of happiness, we place unnecessary burdens on ourselves by thinking we need to be perfect now. So even while she's addressing this, she's keenly aware of the fact that she needs to not be placing blame for this where it belongs, which would ultimately be on the three members of the First Presidency who are seated immediately behind her and listening to her talk in general conference. She goes on, such thoughts can be overwhelming. Achieving perfection is a process that will take place throughout our mortal life and beyond, and only through the grace of Jesus Christ. So here she attempts to try and alleviate some of this burden that the sisters are feeling that indeed her daughter felt, that her friend felt, and one suspects that probably she felt as well, at least at some point in her life, if not currently. And she's going to try and say that achieving perfection is a process, so we don't have to do it all right now. And I think this is a good message. What's going to happen, however, is that unfortunately, she's going to give this message of, hey, you don't have to do everything right now. But by the time she gets to the end of her talk, she's going to pull the rug out from everything that she has said, all the solace she has given, and she is going to go back, perhaps even unconsciously, to a message of, yes, you have to do everything that you're supposed to do right now. And ironically, she will do it in the context of quoting the prophet, President Nelson, who is sitting right behind her. We'll see how this plays out. If we scroll down in her talk, after having spoken about Jesus's grace and how it makes up for things that we can't do on our own, so we always have a friend in Jesus, we can rely on him to make up for those things that we lack. She says this, for those of us currently struggling or supporting someone who is struggling, so this is the group to whom she is speaking specifically to you people who are struggling. Let us be willing to follow God's commandments so we may always have his spirit with us. So you see how now she's come back around and she said, you're in this problem. You're struggling because you think you have to follow all of God's commandments right now. And then she comes around at the end and says, in order to get out of this struggle, you have to do the thing that was, <laughs> you have to do the thing that is putting you in this difficult position and causing you to struggle in the first place, i.e. keep all the commandments of God. Once again, she says, for those of us currently struggling or supporting someone who is struggling, let us be willing to follow God's commandments so we may always have his spirit with us. And now she goes on to quote President Russell M. Nelson as saying the following, quote, nothing opens the heavens quite like the combination of increased purity. See where you are right now, not good enough, 
must increase it, must do more. An increase purity is an interesting phrase because it means that no matter where you are, it's not good enough. You need to increase it. Yes, these are the kind of teachings from the leaders of the church, i.e. the ones sitting right behind you, Sister Roberto, that are causing these problems in the first place. It is not the sisters who are putting this burden on themselves. It is the leaders of the church, the male leaders of the church, who are putting this burden on on the sisters. And unfortunately, it is this particular sister, Sister Roberto, who even in the context of trying to recognize and alleviate this burden, is going to once again put it back on the sisters in spades. This is a talk like the character Sisyphus in Greek legend, who is continually rolling a huge stone up a hill only to have it roll down again, and then have to push it once again up the hill only to have it roll down again. This is what I see happening in this talk. She is relieving the burden of having the boulder roll down the hill only to once again place it upon the sisters and make them push it up the hill once more. It is a continual process. This is eternal life for members of the LDS church because it is a process that goes on apparently eternally and certainly throughout the duration of this mortal life. Once again, getting back to this quote from President Russell M. Nelson that Sister Roberto quotes in this talk. Nothing opens the heavens quite like the combination of increased purity, exact obedience, earnest seeking, daily feasting on the words of Christ in the Book of Mormon, and regular time committed to temple and family history work. Now, in that one sentence, you can start to see the overwhelming burden that is placed upon members of the church and especially upon women in the church. Not only do they have to always increase their purity, they have to have exact obedience to all the demands of the LDS church. And now he gives a few of those examples. Earnest seeking, daily feasting, daily feasting on the words of Christ in the Book of Mormon. You got to read the Book of Mormon every day, otherwise you're not being exactly obedient. And regular time committed to temple work and also to family history work. Now, those are just some of the many demands that are placed upon members by the leaders of the LDS church. But the exact obedience phrase is the one that captures it all. We must be exactly obedient to everything that is required of us within the context of the LDS church. And if we are not, then we cannot be happy. Because remember, that's where true happiness comes from within the LDS context. I remember Paul H. Dunn back in a general conference talk in the 1970s saying that if we really follow our religion, we as Mormons should bounce through life. That's the expression I remember. We should be so happy that we bounce through life because that is the only place that true joy comes from and true happiness comes from is through strictly obeying all the commandments that are given to us in the LDS church. And that is why it is that Sister Alberto ends up getting wrapped around the axle and essentially contradicting herself when she says immediately before this, for those of us currently struggling or supporting someone who is struggling, well, what's the remedy? Is it to say, hey, maybe I don't have to do all this stuff right now. Maybe I could just do a little bit of this stuff now and some more of this stuff next week. Maybe I don't have to do all of this stuff right now. Maybe I can just relieve some of this pressure. But no, we can't relieve the pressure because if we relieve the pressure, then we're not really going to be happy. Instead, we're going to be miserable. The only way to really relieve the pressure is to put the pressure back on and to do everything that we're required to do, even when it's actually impossible to do everything that we're required to do. This is the conundrum that LDS members are in, in order to seek happiness. And this is why she says, if you're struggling right now, let us be willing to follow God's commandments. And to what degree should we be willing to follow God's commandments? Well, that's where she quotes Russell Nelson, with exact 
obedience. So Sister Alberto is able to recognize the problem. She's able to enunciate the problem, but her solution to the problem is what causes the problem in the first place. It is ultimately a self-defeating talk. This is a talk like a push-me-pull-you in Dr. Doolittle. That would be the llama that has heads on both ends, and it's always trying to walk in opposite directions at the same time with the result that it never really goes anywhere. And unfortunately, she mixes grace with works in the time-honored tradition that Mormons have done through a very much abused passage in the Book of Mormon. And I think you probably know what that passage is. Here's what she says in her final paragraph. I testify to you that through cloud and sunshine, the Lord will abide with us. Our afflictions can be swallowed up in the joy of Christ. And here it is. It is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. So here's the problem in a nutshell. We are required to do everything that we can do before the grace of Christ kicks in to save us. And that is the common interpretation of this passage in the Book of Mormon. It is the common interpretation which she appears to adopt. And the problem with this common interpretation is that nobody does all they can do. There will always have been something else that you could have done. You could have always read your scriptures a little bit longer. You could have always attended the temple a little bit more. You could always have done a little more family history. You could have always been a little bit better visiting teacher or ministering teacher. You could have always done a little bit better in your calling. You could have always done a little bit better as a parent and as a wife. So this whole talk is a setup for failure. This whole talk is a setup for misery. And this whole talk is a setup for more women and more members of the church feeling defective and broken. It is a talk that if she had stopped halfway through, it would have been, in my opinion, a resounding success and perhaps even a historical talk in the history of General Conference. But what she ends up doing is very similar to what Elder Holland did a couple of General Conferences ago when he gave a similar talk where he talks about how difficult it is and how overwhelming it is to think that we have to be perfect even as our Father in Heaven is perfect. And then he laughs about it and he goes through a number of anecdotes and a number of scriptures to talk about why it is that we need to not be so hard on ourselves. but ends up by the end of his talk coming down in the exact same location as Sister Alberto, which is that we have to keep all the commandments of God with exactness. Because really, even though LDS leaders recognize this phenomenon of sadness, of brokenness, of even depression in the LDS church because of the commitments placed upon them by the church, they are constitutionally incapable of getting away from their theological linchpin that you have to do everything that you're told to do and supposed to do if you're going to be saved in the celestial kingdom and if you're going to be happy. And so once again, this is why it is that so many people go to church pretending to be happy when actually they are anything but and this problem is only exacerbated by the fact that this is pretty much what everybody's doing. Everybody's dealing with difficult situations. Everybody's dealing with difficult problems. Lots of people are dealing with depression and feeling broken and defective, and I'm just not good enough because I can't do everything I'm supposed to, but they know they're supposed to pretend to be happy, so they all go to church. They all pretend to be happy, and so I go to church. For example, I'm feeling broken. I'm feeling defective, but I'm looking around at all these other people pretending to be happy, and the problem is that I think that they really are happy, and they really are keeping all the commandments and I'm the only one who's not. I'm the only one who's defective, which just increases the feelings of isolation, the feelings of loneliness, and the feelings of despair that I myself experience. I think that I'm the only one going through this when in fact it's really pretty much everybody who's in the same boat. 
Okay, that's the end of that talk. The next talk is called Honoring His Name by Lisa L. Harkness. You see, even the sisters get middle initials when you become (laughs) a leader in the church. And now we will be pleased to hear from Lisa L. Harkness, the first counselor in the primary general presidency. And the main thing I wanted to say about her talk was the fact that she also, this is the second talk that quotes my favorite scripture in the Book of Mormon, 2 Nephi 33 and 6. I had never heard it that I recall before in a general conference, and I've heard it once already. In a prior session, I talked about this. This is the scripture, I glory in plainness, I glory in truth, I glory in my Jesus, for he hath redeemed my soul from hell. And that I put this in a Christmas card, an office Christmas card, many years ago that I sent around to the local legal community. But here is where she mentions this passage, only she modifies it just a bit. Not long ago, I was listening to the Book of Mormon. In the last chapter of 2 Nephi, I heard Nephi say something that I had never read the same way before. So she's listening to this on audio tape or on live streaming or something, perhaps. All throughout his record, he teaches and testifies of the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the Lamb of God, and the Messiah. But as he closed his account, I heard him say these words, quote, I glory in plainness, I glory in truth, I glory in my Jesus. That's what she emphasizes here. I glory in my Jesus, for he hath redeemed my soul. Wait, she doesn't say redeem my soul from hell. She doesn't complete the passage. For some reason, she puts a period after soul and she ends the quotation mark as if that's the end of what Nephi says. He says, I glory in my Jesus, for he hath redeemed my soul from hell. But she has him say, I glory in my Jesus, for he hath redeemed my soul, period. It is possible, she thought, that since she is in the primary general presidency and is therefore addressing the girls of the church, that maybe she should leave out the H-E double hockey sticks at the end of that scripture. But that's too bad because from my point of view, that's the one that gives the real crash of completion at the end of that quote. I glory in my Jesus for he hath redeemed my soul from hell. If you drop off the my hell part, just doesn't do it for me. But I understand why it was that she probably did this. Boy, this reminds me, when I was a kid, I must have been 12 years old or so, and me and one of my brothers, I know that's incorrect grammar, sorry mom, she's passed away. When my my brother and I, one of my brothers and I, were traveling with my mom between Texas and Washington by car, and we stopped in a motel one evening, and I remember talking with my mom about the word hell, because I wanted so much to swear, and hell was a great swear word, but my mom was kind of down on me swearing. And so I talked to her about the word hell, and she says, well, hell does appear in the Bible, so I guess it's okay to say. And boy, I started saying hell this and hell that for the rest of the trip, because I got the green light from mom. I could not say hell enough. So now we get to the third talk by the third woman in the women's session of General Conference. This is Bonnie H. Cordone. Yes, she gets a middle initial as well. Bonnie H. Cordone. She's the young women general president. So we started off with the Relief Society presidency member speaking, then the primary general presidency member for the girls. And now we're going to have the young women general president speak. And I want to make a couple of comments about her talk. The first comment I want to make has to do with a story that she tells. And here we're going to get once again back into the theme of the general conference death march. You cannot go too many talks in general conference without stumbling over one of these talks about somebody who gets terribly ill, a member of the church who gets priesthood blessings, but those priesthood blessings do not work. They die anyway. 
And here's the next story we encounter that follows this theme. And here's what Sister Cordon says. And finally, meet my dear friend Ashton. Now she's showing pictures of different girls up on the screen. And this is the last story she's going to mention. And she shows a picture of a young girl and says, And finally, meet my dear friend Ashton, an extraordinary young woman who passed away after a six-year battle with cancer. Her strong testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ still echoes in my heart. Well, that's all she has to say about Ashton. But unfortunately, and this is tragic, and once again, I'm not making fun of these stories. They're horrible. They're awful for Ashton, for her family, for her friends, for everybody concerned. This is not something to be made light of. I only bring it up to show that Ashton, who is a young woman, who is a member of the LDS Church, who gets cancer, obviously is receiving many, many priesthood blessings. And yet, after a six-year battle with cancer, she passes away. And apparently, the miracle here is that her strong testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ still echoes in my heart. Well, one wonders if a strong testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ is not the same thing as having faith in Jesus Christ, because we read in the scriptures, both in the New Testament as well as in the Book of Mormon and in the Doctrine and Covenants, that if a person has faith in Jesus Christ, they can be made whole, and especially is that so within a church that claims to have the healing power of the holy priesthood of God. I really, really wish that this story had been told as follows. And finally, meet my dear friend Ashton, an extraordinary young woman who contracted cancer, received a priesthood blessing, and was miraculously healed. Isn't that the story that we all want to hear? Isn't that the story that we should be hearing at least sometime in general conference? And yet, incredibly, this is the kind of story I never hear. Instead, I keep hearing stories of faithful Mormons with her strong testimony of the atonement of Jesus Christ who receives priesthood blessings, obviously, but who is not healed. And frankly, after seeing this many stories of this nature, it starts to become a bit of a downer. And I can guarantee you one thing, these kind of stories repeated ad infinitum in general conference are not increasing faith among the Latter-day Saints that they can do the same thing. In fact, these kind of stories lead members of the LDS Church to believe that there will not be any miraculous healing, that even though there is this conceptual and theoretical idea that the priesthood exists in the church and the priesthood blessings can heal people, we really understand that's not going to happen and they're really not going to be healed. And so we'll give the priesthood blessing not to heal them, but so that God's will is done. And if God wants to heal them, yeah, they'll be healed. But if not, well, hey, do you have faith not to be healed? She goes on in her talk and introduces the new young women's theme, which starts off with this line, I am a beloved daughter of heavenly parents. Okay? Parents, plural, heavenly father and heavenly mother. We don't actually want to say heavenly mother, but we will say heavenly parents and include her by implication. And so once again, I see this as a theme that is starting to emerge in general conference. And I expect we will hear it more in the upcoming general conference that heavenly parents will be mentioned with more frequency, that heavenly mother will thereby be invoked. And according to my theory that I put out in an earlier podcast, the reason that the leaders of the church are permitting this and are invoking Heavenly Mother more and more frequently has to do 
Not so much with their welcoming of Heavenly Mother into the Mormon pantheon, but more to do with the idea that the existence of a Heavenly Mother and her necessity to Heavenly Father in having spirit children in their exalted state, and that being the fundamental basis for exaltation in the LDS Church's theology currently, stands in opposition to the willingness of the Church to allow homosexuals to be members of the Church on an equal footing with heterosexuals, and God forbid, to keep them from getting married in the temple. Now, I cannot say that this is what is being done intentionally, that this is why Heavenly Mother is being invoked more in general conference. All I'm going to say is that whether it's intentional or not, this is the effect that it seems to have, as in squashing the homosexual agenda within the LDS Church of their desire to be had in the LDS Church on an equal footing. Indeed, it was just a few weeks ago that there was a huge controversy at BYU where they modified the honor code to take out the penalties for homosexuality and homosexual expression on campus or otherwise by students at Brigham Young University. And when this was taken out, it was thought that this meant that the church had eased its restrictions on the expression of homosexual affection. Certainly not that they were okay with homosexual sex going on, but that they would be okay with expressions such as dating or holding hands or even kissing. In other words, that homosexuals on BYU campus could do the same kind of things that heterosexuals could do. And it would be okay. They would be treated equally and they would be placed on an even footing. So there was great rejoicing among the students at BYU, both the homosexuals as well as the heterosexuals who supported their friends who were gay and thought it was a great thing that they'd be able to be put on the same footing as the heterosexuals. It seemed to mark a new day for the LDS Church's acceptance of homosexuals on their own terms. But of course, this hope was shortly thereafter completely dashed by the fact that the LDS Church, through its administrators at BYU, put out a letter of correction, making it very clear that that's not what they meant, that indeed, they still had the same view of homosexual activity as they had before, that really, you couldn't be acting out, holding hands, or kissing, or dating homosexually on BYU without it impacting you negatively, both as a student and as a member of the church. And with that letter, it sounded to some like a retrenchment of their position, but what I really think is that they were never untrenching in the first place. This was always their position. And the reason they took this language out of the honor code in the first place had nothing to do with the relaxing of the church's attitude toward homosexual behaviors and expressions, but rather there was an ulterior reason for removing that language from the honor code in the first place. And that ulterior reason had nothing to do with the church changing its position on homosexuality. Rather, it had to do with the church wanting to go along, to get along with other universities, with other hiring institutions, with other unnamed reasons. I don't know all the ins and outs. All I know is that obviously the church did not change its position, so it was doing it for an ulterior motive. And what they wanted was for the students to understand that even though they were changing the language in the honor code, they really weren't changing their position on the subject. And I'm sure they were appalled to see pictures on Facebook of girls kissing on BYU campus. And so I'm sure they were quite surprised that they actually had to issue a letter saying, hey, we didn't really mean it. We're just doing this for the outside world. We're just saying this to get along with the outside world. The standards that we have in the church really haven't changed at all. You didn't understand. So now we've got to issue this letter. And now for all you students who are out there posting pictures of you kissing your girlfriend, 
girls kissing their girlfriend, now you are in the unenviable position of not only violating the standards and the honor code at BYU because you thought we changed it when actually we hadn't. Now you have given us the evidence that we need to prove that you violated the honor code. Thank you very much. Well, this is the sort of thing that the LDS Church has done from time immemorial. The leaders of the church give mixed messages. They give one message to those outside the church while they're giving another message to those inside the church. And this can be traced as far back as Joseph Smith, who publicly would say that he was not practicing polygamy when actually behind the scenes, he was practicing polygamy. And you can take this kind of phenomenon all the way up to Gordon B. Hinckley, who when asked about Joseph Smith's teaching that God was once a man, doesn't say, yeah, we believe that. Instead, he said, I don't know that we teach that. I don't know that we emphasize that. And thereby, not just sidestepping the issue, but basically giving out the idea that, no, we don't really believe that. We don't know a lot about it. We don't teach it. We don't emphasize it. And this caused a lot of concern among many members of the church who know perfectly well that that is what Joseph Smith taught. That is what the church teaches. And so therefore, at the next general conference, I remember Gordon B. Hinckley going out there and in an unscripted comment saying to the audience and saying to the church generally that a lot of people are wondering whether he knows the doctrine of the church and then assuring the membership that yes, he does know the doctrine of the church. And this was greeted with some laughter by members of the audience because what he is signaling to them is this time-honored tradition in Mormonism is that leaders of the church will say one thing to the public, i.e., I don't know that we emphasize it, I don't know that we teach this doctrine, but to the members of the church, they will say a different thing. In other words, they will teach this doctrine to the members of the church, but if it's something that they think is going to be embarrassing, if the public knows about it, then they will try and give the opposite message to the public that they don't really teach this. Another example of this, which I'll go into on another podcast at some point, is the idea in Mormon theology that when Mormons, good faithful Mormons, are resurrected and exalted, then they will end up having spirit children and they will create a world over which they will be gods. They will have their own world. And this is something that has been taught at least ever since Brigham Young in the LDS Church and has continued to be taught in manuals in the LDS Church today. But on the LDS Church website a number of years ago, a different message was given in the question and answer section, and I think it was on the church newsroom. So this is for the public. This is the message for the public. The message for the members is, yes, you will be exalted. Yes, you will have your own planet. But because that is an embarrassing kind of teaching for others outside the church to know, the message to the outside was, no, Mormons don't teach this. And once again, I wrote an article about that a number of years back, and I will probably revisit that here maybe this coming week. Maybe that would be a good time to do it to show you what it is I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is that the Mormon church has an established track record of speaking one thing to the public and another thing, which is a different thing, to the members of the church. Now, there are a number of problems associated with this kind of behavior. The first thing is, is that it gives you license when you're talking to the public to say something that is not true. It is church-sanctioned lying for the Lord, or at least dissembling for the Lord, or at least equivocating for the Lord. But in a circumstance where teaching what the Mormon church really believes to the public, if that's going to be embarrassing and if it is thought that that's going to put the church in a bad light, then it is sanctioned to lie about it and say, no, we don't teach that. We teach something else. And over time, I'll say it's true for me at least, and once again, I don't think I'm the only Mormon who felt this way, that I could identify that in the leaders of the church. I understood that it was something that was appropriate, that it was sanctioned, it was okay, and then I would do 
the same thing in my life when I'm talking with people who are not members of the church. I would shade things. I would equivocate. Sometimes I would probably even lie because the overall goal, the most important thing, is to get people to have a favorable impression of the church. And if you have to lie about the church right now in order to make that happen, then that's okay. There'll be plenty of time later on after they're baptized, after they've been to the temple, to tell them the truth. It is something I'm sure I have done in the past. It's not something I'm proud of, but I'm here to tell you that I have done it. And I expect many of my listeners have done it as well. And what I'm pointing out now is that we come by this Honestly, if you can come by something dishonest, honestly, well, we have because we have watched this behavior be patterned by the leaders of the church. And Gordon B. Hinckley just happens to be an excellent example of this with this particular incident. Now, there's a couple of other problems with this. If that isn't bad enough, there's another couple of problems with it. What happens if we look at a church leader who's saying something to the public and we think that church leader really doesn't mean it because he's speaking to the public, but actually the church leader does mean it? What do we do then? So the church leaders have taken away to a large degree their ability to teach things to the members of the church in the context of teaching it to the public, because if it's something that the member thinks is strange, they are likely to think that the church leader is just saying this to the public and they don't really mean it. And this is one of the reasons it was so difficult for church leaders when the time came that they really, really were renouncing the practice of polygamy to get the members to understand that that's what they really meant because they had previously said they were renouncing polygamy when they weren't really renouncing polygamy. And so members kept thinking that the church was just saying this to the outside world when the reality was something different. That's one thing. But the other side of that coin is just as bad. What happens when the church leader says something to the public that is not strictly in accordance with LDS teaching? And the church leader is only saying it to the public in order to make the church look good, but it's not necessarily true. What happens when a church member listens to what that church leader is saying to the public and believes that that church leader is saying something that is true? What happens then? And this is sort of what happened on the BYU campus a few weeks ago. You end up having people actually believing what the church is saying, acting upon it, and then getting their hopes dashed and being put in compromising positions. Why? Because they trusted the leaders of the church. This is a really, really bad situation to be in, but it is a situation that the LDS church has put itself in because of its tradition of saying one thing to the public and a different thing to the members. Okay, now once again, back to this third talk in the Women's Session of General Conference. This is where the announcement is made that the names Beehive, Maya Maid, and Laurel will not be used any further. Here's what she says. Third, with this new class organization, I'm just going to go to the third point. I'm not going to go through all the points. Once again, I don't want this podcast to actually be as boring as General Conference is, so I'm just going to focus on the things I find of interest. Hopefully, you'll agree with me. Third, with this new class organization, all classes will be referred to by the unifying name of young women. So, they're all young women now. We will retire the names Beehive, Maya Maid, and Laurel. So no longer Beehive, no longer Maya Maid, no longer Laurel. They're just going to be the young women. The young men, of course, will retain their names of their priesthood offices of teacher, deacon, and priest. She doesn't say that, but we know that to be the case from Elder Cook's comments earlier. Oh, and Bonnie Corden is going to echo President Nelson's title for all the youth as the Lord's Youth Battalion. You remember that President Nelson mentioned that term twice in his comments earlier on Saturday. Elder Cook mentioned that phrase once out of deference to President Nelson. And now Sister Cordon, the Young Women General President, will also mention that phrase. You see, when the prophet tries to get a phrase to catch on, everybody else is supposed to play along and help out. That's how we do it in the LDS Church. 
Put your shoulder to the wheel, push along. And here's what she says. Yes, this is how we gather Israel. Oh my gosh. Okay, so this is going to be a confluence of those two themes. Once again, this redefinition of the gathering of Israel, and once again, this iteration of the Lord's Youth Battalion. Here's what she says. Let me go back a little bit. The role and purpose of class presidencies have been strengthened and more clearly defined. The work of salvation is one of these significant responsibilities. So it's the work of salvation that we're leading up to, particularly in the areas of ministering, missionary work, activation, and temple and family history work. Yes, this is how we gather Israel. So once again, this theme, we have to change the definition because we are no longer actually gathering Israel to a central place of Zion in Jackson County, where we will build the city of Zion. Instead, the gathering of Israel is ministering, missionary work, activation, and temple and family history work. She says, yes, this is how we gather Israel. And then she says, a glorious work for all young women as members of, drumroll please, the Lord's Youth Battalion. So this is the fourth time that the young people in the church are called the Lord's Youth Battalion. I expect it will be mentioned at least three times in the upcoming general conference. We will see how that plays out. Okay, that's all for now. So in this episode, we have covered the talks from the three women who spoke in the Women's Session of General Conference, October of 2019. In the next episode, we will go over the really important talks. I mean, we know who the important talks are given by, right? That's by the First Presidency, who will speak in the last half of the Women's Session. We will cover the talks by Henry B. Eyring, Covenant Women in Partnership with God, Two Great Commandments by President Dallin H. Oaks. I'll have a lot to say about that talk. And finally, President Russell M. Nelson's talk, Spiritual Treasures. So remember, in the midst of this coronavirus epidemic, wash your hands frequently with soap and hot water, stay away from crowds, maintain a social distancing space of at least six feet from the nearest person. If you have to cough, cough into your elbow and not upon your neighbor. And together, we will lick this coronavirus. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air. 